Lord, we just thank you for being here with us this morning. We thank you for your presence. And we just ask that you would teach us, encourage us. We ask that that you would show us something or teach us something that's going to challenge us, motivate us, encourage us to move towards you, Father. That we will hear truth that will encourage us, equip us, even convict us, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of repentance. And we thank you for your grace that you give us so that we can embrace your word and put it into practice. And we just open our hearts to you today, Father. And we ask you to minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, first of all, I'd like to uh, welcome those of you who this is your first time or maybe even your second time coming to New Covenant Fellowship. My name is C.J. Ellis. I'm the pastor here at New Covenant, and we're glad that you chose to come and uh, celebrate Easter with us this morning. We uh, had a good time this week. We did, a, you know, some outreaches. We went out to the park, Boomer Lake. A couple of times and, and I was pretty I was pretty excited because we had a variety of, of you guys participate. And I was really excited about that. Seeing you out there and, and just seeing some of you just be aggressive and get out there and hand out the water and bless people. And and um, and I was so excited about that. We had a wonderful response. Good turnout. <clears throat> Got to uh, come in contact with a lot of people. And I look forward to uh, doing more outreaches and things like that in the near future. But I, uh, mainly I'm bringing this up because I want to say thank you to those who participated, who passed out the water, who stood out there. It was warm one day. It was cool one day. So we were the hot one day or cold the, the other one. But thank you for coming and, and participating in that outreach with us. I want to talk about something today. Um, probably won't be bringing up the Easter Bunny anymore, so... Hope that doesn't disappoint you. But I want to talk about, uh, ask uh, an important question that Jesus asked his disciples. You know, Jesus had been around on earth for a while, been with his disciples, done many things. And he turned to him and he said, he said, um, who do people say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they said, well, because there's a lot of rumors going around as to who Jesus was. And they said, well, some say you're the prophet. Some say you're this. Some say, you know, John risen from the dead. Some say, and they had all kinds of. People had all kinds of opinions as to who Jesus was. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> then he turned to them and his disciples and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And that's the real question. It's not who do other people think that Jesus is, but it's who do you think that he is? Because it really doesn't when it comes down to it, it really doesn't matter what others think about Jesus, but it really matters what you think about him and who he is to you. Because when you stand before God someday, I don't think he's going to ask, so who do people think I am? You know, and so it's going to be between us and God. But that is a very important question, and we do need to consider that today. Who is Jesus Christ? And what, you know, what makes him so special? What makes him so controversial? You know, it's funny because you can talk about God. You can talk about, in a lot of, a lot of uh, settings, you can talk about Muhammad, Buddha, Religious leaders, but as soon as you mention Jesus, then it's all the rules change. So we're not allowed to talk about it. I remember when I worked at the youth shelter many years ago, Payne County Youth Services Youth Shelter. And <clears throat> could someone get me a glass of water, a cup of water, please? Thanks. Um, and I remember one time they were talking about, I came into work late and a friend of mine who was a Christian, she happened to be a Christian, and she was really frustrated. And I asked her what was going on. She said, you know, at the dinner table tonight, we had a wonderful discussion. The kids brought up, someone brought up religion, and they were asking, (coughs) excuse me for a second. Okay, better. Um, They were talking around the dinner table, and the discussion of religion came up, and they were talking about, Different religious leaders. And one kid even talked about Satan worship and that kind of thing. And the, the boss was okay with it. But then when she, the, my coworker, wanted to bring up Jesus, start talking about him, they had to stop the conversation. Because they weren't allowed to 
talk about Jesus and bring that up. And it's very interesting because in society, there seems to be a double standard. You can talk about religion, but as soon as you bring up the J word, everything stops. Everything changes. You know, and, and when you hear people using profanity, you know, they'll use Jesus name, you know, and things like that. But you don't hear them, you know, using old Buddha or, you know, they don't use they don't use other religious leaders. At least I haven't heard it. <clears throat> but you hear Jesus Christ thrown out left and right as a as a as a cuss word. Why is it that he is so special, so controversial? What makes him so different than all the other religious leaders? I remember one time as a youth pastor, we were, um, I was always thinking of excuses to get the youth out there, out on the streets. And, and so I came up with one idea as we were going to do a, a series like this. Um, I said, let's go out and, and do a survey and ask people who Jesus is. And I remember walking, going into Conoco and, and I walked up to this guy and I was talking to him. said, hey, we're doing a questionnaire for our youth group and I just have a question for you. He said, what's that? I said, who is Jesus Christ to you? And... Uh, throughout the day, we'd gotten different answers. You know, a lot of people said he's the son of God, that kind of thing. But he said the one that I was hoping he would, you know, he, I finally got the one I was wanting to get. And he said, well, I don't believe he's the son of God, but I believe Jesus was a very good teacher, a good moral teacher. Has anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever heard someone describe Jesus as a good moral teacher? Don't believe he's the son of God, but that he's a good moral teacher. <clears throat> And the funny thing is, people think that that's okay. They think, you know, I believe, I know Jesus was a historical figure. He's been around, you know, it's, that's proven. He was definitely here. I don't believe he's the son of God, but I believe he was a good man. And they're okay with that, and they can rest with that and be at peace and go about their business. But if you really think truthfully, we are not given that option to just think that Jesus is a good moral teacher. Actually, we only have three options. When it comes down to it, who Jesus Christ is, there are only three options. And good moral teacher is not one of them. The first option is he's a liar. Is Jesus Christ a liar? Now you say, well, why can't we be given the option of good moral teacher? Because he taught some wonderful truths. He did some wonderful things. So he was a good man, but I don't necessarily have to agree that he was God. Well, there's one problem. Jesus said, I am God. Jesus said he was God. He said it. Did you catch me on that? He said it. Matter of fact, that's why he was killed. Because he claimed to be God. So, since he said it. So if he said, I am God, and he's not God, then he's a liar. He can't be a good moral teacher if he's going around telling people that he's God. Are you with me so far? Okay, so he either knew he wasn't God, but said he was God, and that, therefore that would make him a liar. Or he thought he was God, but he really wasn't. That would make him a lunatic. You know, kind of messed up in the head, that kind of thing. And, and people have come and gone who claim to be God or claim to be the Messiah. There's been a number of people that have claimed that. So Jesus could have been another one of those kind of people come along the scene. I'm God. Follow me and all that kind of thing. So either he was a liar. He knew he wasn't God, but said he was. Or he was a lunatic, thought he was God, but really wasn't. Or he was God. Those are the only three options we have. And I shared that with that man. And, of course, people get real uncomfortable because you totally mess up their comfort zone after you. You just totally destroyed their comfortable theological mindset. But I'm sharing that with you <clears throat> just so you can be thinking. Because if you're one of the people that just had Jesus in that nice little comfortable, think he's a nice religious moral person, you can no longer hold that. that uh, and God did it intentionally. God didn't want us to have the thought that Jesus was just a good man. Because God pointed the way and wanted us to realize and understand who Jesus Christ was. He made it real clear. And we'll talk about that more. Man's the one that comes and, and messes things up. <clears throat> Years ago when I went to OSU here, back in the dark ages, um, when I first became a Christian, one thing that I just, just the passion, just the love of God just went all through me. And I just could not wait to tell people about Jesus. And... 
because I just fell in love with him. He just changed my life radically. Now, I, wasn't, I was considered, I would have been considered a good person. I didn't cause trouble, didn't rebel against my parents, didn't do the drugs, the gangs. I didn't do the social sins. So to the common person, I would have been a good person. But I realized the conviction of God came in my heart, and I realized that I was going to the same place, the same hell that any drug dealer or murderer was going. Because I was guilty, because I had sin. And because God's holy, I was guilty. I deserved his judgment, and I was going to go to hell. And I came to that reality. I committed my life to Jesus. He saved me, forgave me, and I was on my way to heaven. And so when that reality hit me, I was just so excited, full of passion for Jesus. And so me and my friends, for fun, we'd go on a strip over by Eskimo Joe's and the bars and everything, Thursday nights, Friday nights, and go witness to people, pass out tracts, you know, tell people about Jesus. And I remember one time we were out there and, and uh, just passing out tracks. And, you know, if you pass out a bunch of tracks, all you do is turn around and, and 99 of them out of 100 are laying on the ground. So that's not the most effective way to witness. But anyway, we're passing out tracks to people, telling them about Jesus. And I was so zealous that I separated myself, which was dumb. <laughs> separated myself from my friends because I wanted to cover more ground, tell more people. So I went across the street, passing out tracks, and I came across this guy. And I said, here you go. I'd like to give this to you. And he said, oh, what's this? And I said, well, it's just a reminder that Jesus loves you. He said, oh, really? And I thought, I got someone interested. So I stopped because he stopped and started looking at it. And so I stopped thinking, all right, the harvest is ripe. I'm about to pluck the apple off the tree. Praise God. You know, I was getting all excited because I thought this guy was interested. Well, he wasn't. And what happened is I fell into a setup by the enemy. And he started asking me. I, basically, I came across a very, very brilliant intellectual who happened to be an atheist. And he was waiting for someone like me to come along. Some young freshman, brand new Christian, didn't know nothing. And he was ready to tear me apart, and he did. He said, well, you know, if there's a God or if... And then he started asking me these questions. You know, the kind of questions that you can't answer. And he's asking me question after question. I was like, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, and I was, just, I was just messed up. It, it messed me up so much that I left. I, I left my friends, and I jogged home back to Bennett. I went in my room, and I just cried. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. And I said, God, are you real? Is this Christianity thing, is it real, or is it just a bunch of nonsense? Am I wasting my time? That's what my encounter with that guy, that's what it left me with. I was messed up uh, mentally, uh, intellectually. I was really messed up, and I was hurting. And I, I mean, you know, crying myself to sleep. And before I went to sleep, the Holy Spirit said one thing to me. He said, remember the resurrection. That's all he said. Remember the resurrection. And so I fell asleep with that. And that encounter was very instrumental in changing my life. Because I got, I got hit hard in my intellect. This guy threw these intellectual bullets at me and tore me up. You know, there's a verse in the Bible. Actually, it's more than one. It says, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Did I skip anything? Thank you. That right there. Mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And people think that, that Christianity is just a blind faith. That it's just a, oh, you just take it by faith. There's not really evidence to, to validate Christianity. You just, you just believe it. Because. Just because. And you know, after that... When I woke up the next morning after that encounter, um, I'd gotten paid. So the one, first thing I always did with my paycheck was go to the Christian bookstore and blow most of my paycheck and just buy all the stuff, you know, CDs, because I would just discover Christian music. And not that I discovered it. I discovered it for me. Okay? And, and just I would just go crazy over, over the stuff in the Christian bookstore. And I was looking, looking through the books, and I came across a book that said, Resurrection factor. This one right here. And I saw that and I pulled it out and I started looking through it, thumbing through it and reading it. And I thought, oh, my goodness. So I immediately bought it, read this book, and it changed my life. Now, this book really changed my life. And this book came along and supplemented and it helped validate this book right here. And it really helped me because for the first time, 
I was able to love God with my mind. I was able to love God with my mind and understand, man, God, you are not only you're real or awesome, but you there's so much evidence to prove who you are. In other words, God made it so easy to believe that he exists, that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He's the king of kings. He made it so easy to believe that. We choose man out of the hardness of his heart chooses to disbelieve. The Bible says in, in, in uh, Psalms that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says there is no God. Fool says there is no God. So for a person to be an atheist, they're a fool. Because they are, they are intentionally ignoring truth. Intentionally ignoring truth. And there's many reasons or different ways where people come to that place. And we're not going to get into that discussion today. But anyway, I became so excited because I realized I can love God not only with my heart, soul, and strength, because I did, but I can love God with my mind intellectually. And I was like, where's that guy? Where's that guy? And if I would have found that guy, he probably would have tore me up again. (laughs) But anyway, I was so excited. And I just want to share some things with you today. This book is out of print. You can't buy it new anymore. Unless they decide to do a, a, re, uh, you know, a, a new printing of it, but it's, it's out of print right now. But you can buy it on Amazon.com or you can buy it used. And I have four copies, five copies available to buy. And I'm just going to charge you for shipping. So you can get these for $4. Okay, if you're interested. Now, there's only four out there, this fifth one. So if you're interested. Also, this book right here, a lot of things I'm going to be sharing will come out of these two books. More than a carpenter and a resurrection factor. If you're, this is your first time coming today. You're going to get one of these for free. All right. Uh, So make sure you uh, visit the Welcome Center and get your welcome packet so we can give you one of these gifts. This is one of my favorite books. Actually, uh, after this one, I found this book. I like this one better than this one because this one's easier to read and I need that kind of help. And anyway, these two books, these two books are awesome, awesome books. They don't necessarily make you able to go out and argue against the, the, the brilliant minds of today, but it gives you food for your mind so you can love God with your mind. And so now when the enemy tries to attack me and and, because how many of you don't have to raise your hand rhetorical question. How many of you sometimes you just get these thoughts that just bombard your mind? Is this really real? Is God real? Is Jesus Christ who he said he was? You just get these questions just coming in your mind and you can start doubting and just just kind of don't sometimes don't know what to do with it. But now every time the enemy tries to throw one of those intellectual bullets at me, just bing, (laughs) you know, Josh McDowell said this, Josh McDowell said that. Basically fighting those thoughts with the word of God, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And you have some interesting ammunition when you learn that there is so much evidence pertaining to Christianity, pertaining to who Jesus Christ was, that you can be excited about the evidence and still not know him. But, and we don't want to make that mistake. But anyway, so there was a new meaning to that, new, that commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And what I want to do today in the next, um, this will be at least a two-week series, possibly three. There's a lot of information in this that I'm going to try to narrow it down and just kind of hit, give you some highlights, some things that will encourage you. And my, my desire is, if you're, if you're here and you love Jesus and you've given your life to him, to give you some food so you can love God with your mind. If you're a seeker and you kind of don't know where you stand with Jesus, hopefully you'll hear some encouraging truths that will help you say, hey, that's, that makes sense. That really makes sense. You know, one thing I realized, if you just intellectually forget faith, forget any other part of your being, just intellectually, if you line up all the religions of the world and you're saying, okay, I know I believe in God, but which one, which path, which way do I go? And so you line up all the religions, line them up and just look at them intellectually. Christianity stands way above all the other religions intellectually. You just look at it intellectually. And we're going to talk about some of these things. First of all, we look at who Jesus claimed he was. He was God. The other religious leaders say, I will show you the way to God. I will teach you truths that help you to live a life that pleases God. But not only did Jesus do that, but he said, I am God. That makes him different from the other religious leaders. And that kind of sets him up because he's okay. He says he's God. So either he is or he isn't. Second, we look at the lifestyle of Jesus Christ, the type of person he was. You know, people who, unless the guy's a, a Satan worshiper or whatever, most people don't have anything bad to say about Jesus. 
Would you agree with that? Unless they're just in total rebellion to God. But when they think of the life of Jesus, or historically speaking of Jesus, it's like, man, he was a, he was a good man, did wonderful things, you know, changed society and everything. One thing I want to bring to your attention is fulfilled prophecy. If you line Jesus up and you compare him to other religious leaders, he's the only one that fulfilled prophecy accurately. God said many, 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 many years ago, I'm going to send my son, my savior, and here's what he's going to look like. And Jesus Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies. 300 prophecies. 300 prophecies. Now, to help you to get a, maybe a smaller appreciation of what that means, if, because uh, some people can say, the skeptics can say, well, he just, he fulfilled them coincidentally. You know, the prophecy said all these things, and then Jesus just happened to coincidentally fulfill, meet the criteria. And a person say, yeah, see, that's no big deal. And that's what I appreciate about this more than a carpenter. He explains this very thoroughly. But he says, okay, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. He said, but let's just look at eight. Eight prophecies. For Jesus to coincidentally fulfill eight prophecies, that would be like one, a chance one times ten to the 17th power. Now, to give you a, a mental image of what that looks like, so in other words, for, the, for him to do that by chance, it'd be 1 times 10 to the 17th power. Now, what does that look like? I can't wrap my mind around that. It would be like, and this is according to statistics or, or um, scientific whatever. They talk about it in here. I can't explain it all. But he said, if you take the state of Texas, pretty big state, fill that state, get uh, silver dollars, and fill the state of Texas with uh, 10 times 17 to the zero power, that would be uh, silver dollars would fill the state of Texas two foot deep. The whole state. That's how many silver dollars would be. And for someone to coincidentally fulfill eight prophecies, it would be like one person. You get them, line them up at the border, the Red River of Oklahoma, blindfold that person and say, okay, you have, there's, and you mark one of those silver dollars with a red X, throw it somewhere in Texas, Austin, Dallas, Plano, just throw the coin somewhere in Texas. The guy standing on the border of Oklahoma and Texas, you tell him you have one shot blindfolded to get that coin. One shot. That's the same chance as Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies coincidentally. Now, remember what I said earlier. He fulfilled over 300. Hope you to get a better perspective. See, God was making it obvious. Here's my son right here. Here's what he's going to look like. The Bible said where he was going to be born. He's going to be born to a virgin. He's going to be born in a certain city. He's going to be born under a certain lineage of the tribe of Judah, uh, a son of David, of Abraham. You know, he just, the Bible just goes on and on and on. And it says he was going to be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. And it talked about the kind of death he would die before crucifixion was even invented. And just goes on and on and on and on. What other religious leader can say that they fulfilled over 300 prophecies? Zero. Zero. And the last thing I want to talk about, and we'll get more into this, is the resurrection. You know, because Jesus could have been, you know, he said all kinds of things, did all kinds of wonderful things. But then he even said, he told his disciples, remember, he began to tell them, I'm going to be, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. They're not going to be happy. They're going to kill me. But three days later, I'm going to come back. And remember, Peter rebuked him. No, it's not going to happen. God forbid that happen. We're not going to let it happen and, and all that kind of thing. So Jesus even began to tell his disciples. So the, when Jesus was killed, it wasn't like, oh, no, God's plan messed up and he had to come up with a plan B. It was all part of his plan. And why is the resurrection so important? 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is a big deal. 
Because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we're all wasting our time. We're all in our sins and we're all going to just go to hell. And so the resurrection is an important thing. Christianity stands or falls on this one event, the resurrection. The resurrection validates who Jesus is, if the resurrection really happened. And if it's true, then we have something that puts Jesus in a category of his own compared to other religious leaders. Anybody know where Muhammad is? Not spiritually, physically. He's in a grave. Anybody know where Buddha is? Confucius? Uh, any other religious leaders that you can think of? They're in a grave somewhere, and people still celebrate and worship them and that kind of thing. But guess what? If you want to go to the grave where Jesus was, notice I said was, he's not there anymore. The only one, the only religious leader who said, kill me, and in three days I will, I will be back. Now, some people say, you might have heard this, or actually, how many of you heard this say, well, I hear you talking about the resurrection, but can you prove it scientifically? Prove it scientifically. And you say, no, I can't. Say, see, therefore, don't waste my time. I don't want to hear anything about it. If you can't prove it scientifically, then don't even waste my time. Anybody ever heard something similar like that? If you can't prove it scientifically, I don't want to hear it. And some of us Christians, if we don't understand, then it's like we can, we can be intimidated by something like that and even back off and say, man, I don't. I don't know how to answer that. Well, scientific proof is based on showing that something is a fact by repeating the event in the presence of the person questioning the fact. A control environment is set up. Their observations are made, data drawn, and hypothesis empirically verified. In other words, you can only prove something scientifically if it's something that you can observe and repeat over and over and over and over again to verify what you, what you believe. And I just so happen to have a laboratory set up right here. Just in case someone said, well, CJ, do you have a laboratory or something where we can? No, I'm just kidding. And so if someone says, does soap float? Or I believe soap floats. Then you say, we'll prove it scientifically. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to prove scientifically whether soap floats or not. Take out a bar of soap. That I got from a hotel many moons ago. And you may think, yes, I, I believe soap floats. How many of you believe soap floats? Anybody raise your hand. Soap floats. Okay, here's a bar of soap. Light bar. Here's water. i move this out of the way. I'm going to put the soap in the water. And the soap sinks. Now, that could have been just a coincidence. You know, I just, just went under because... It was in a certain kind of mood. Let's see if I can. And so then what we do, to prove it scientifically, you can do it more than once. So then you maybe change your angle, you know, you drop it again, and it sinks again. And you can repeat this over and over and over and over and over and over. Maybe heat up the water a little bit, lower the temperature a little bit, get a bigger aquarium, lower it, make it closer to gravity, uh, do all these things. And you're probably going to come to the same conclusion that this soap right here doesn't float. Now someone can say, well, I believe that ivory soap floats. And say, well, can you prove it scientifically? Say, sure, we can. So you take out a bar of ivory soap. Why is it so difficult? Okay. And you say, how many of you believe this floats? We still got some skeptics in here. Okay. Bar of soap, ivory soap. It floats. But you may be skeptical and say, no, that was just a coincidence. And so we can throw it a little harder and it still floats. We can do all kinds of things, change a little bit, and we're still going to get the same result. And see, that's what the scientific method is used for. It's used to prove something that you can repeat over and over and over again, study it, analyze it, and that kind of thing, and then validate what you say you believe. Do you, how many of you guys went to a restaurant to eat yesterday? Anybody eat out at a restaurant? Now, and I can tell you where y'all went. <laughs> okay, Brian did. Okay, do you realize you cannot prove scientifically that you ate at that restaurant? So you know you did, right? But you can't prove it scientifically because it was an event of history that happened yesterday. You can't repeat that over and over and over again. So then how do you prove something that actually happened 
but you can't use a scientific method. And so the point, one of the points I'm trying to make is the scientific method is very limited in proving things that actually happen. You cannot use historical happenings. Uh, I mean, you cannot use this scientific method to prove historical things. So then how would someone prove, like, let's say if something happened, the clocks, I mean, not the, the yunt said that they went to a restaurant. They, was it Clicks maybe? Applebee's or Appleton? What did you say? Applebee's. Okay. So they say they were at uh, Applebee's last night. Well, let's say there was a murder or something that happened, and they needed an alibi. So they had to prove that they were actually at Applebee's instead of the, the crime scene. They couldn't prove it scientifically, but they would use what's called the legal historical method. This is used to determine the validity of events of history. And there's three kinds of evidence in the legal historical method. Oral testimony, written testimony, and physical evidence or exhibits. And so they would use the legal historical method to prove whether or not they were uh, at Applebee's. And that's what's used in the court of law. And so they could prove if they have the receipt. They can prove, see, here's the receipt dated yesterday's date. They, there's witnesses, people that, yeah, I saw them there. You know, maybe Candy ran into a friend and, and saw so-and-so. Yes, I saw them at 852 at Applebee's on Saturday, blah, 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 blah. And so they can, they can definitively prove that they were there at Applebee's, but you can't use the scientific method to do that. Historical criteria. The resurrection of Christ must be examined. So basically, if we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you have to use this method, the legal historical method and not scientific. And the resurrection of Christ must be examined by the same criteria as is any other past event in history. The evidence must be approached with an honest, fair view of history. The investigation must not be prejudiced by preconceived notions or conclusions. There is a compelling need to let the evidence speak for itself. In other words, we need to let... If you're going to study, um, validate the resurrection, you have to approach it like you would any other historical event. You can't approach it with bias. You know, one thing I appreciate what caught my attention in reading this book is on, on one of the pages it says, There is more evidence pertaining to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other historical event. More evidence pertaining to the resurrection than any other. That ought to get you excited if you love Jesus. And so one of the main things you would use, or actually what we would use to uh, prove the resurrection, is we would use written documentation, uh, one, the main one being the Bible. <clears throat> Scholarly evidence exists in abundance to document that the New Testament, the primary source of the resurrection, can survive the most severe scrutiny according to all the rules for examining testimony and according to the findings of modern archaeology. This Bible stands for itself. It stands every, uh, every test people have have uh, beat this thing and tore it apart to try to disprove it, and it still stands as the number one book. And I'm not going to have time to go into all this kind of stuff, but um, they deal with it in both of these books, talk about the scriptures and everything, so I'd encourage you, to, encourage you to look at that. Talk about a few things, a few elements surrounding the resurrection. First of all, it was foretold, like I mentioned it before, Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus foretold the fact that he was going to be killed and resurrected. Mark 8, 31, Luke 9, 22, and John 2, 19 through 22. Let's look at more elements surrounding the resurrection. First of all, he was killed by crucifixion. That's something that we, all of us know. Uh, crucifixion was a very cruel death. It was something that was invented by the Persians, but it was pretty much perfected by the Romans. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they pretty much perfected it. When they decided they were going to uh, kill someone with crucifixion, they were very thorough. And uh, they knew what they were doing. It was a very gruesome, torturous kind of death. You know, they used, the, uh, they used a whip. Uh, it was a special kind of whip. Some, one nickname was called the Cat of Nine Tails. And it wasn't just a regular horse whip or the kind that you see, you know, just with one strand. But it had many strands, many fingers, and they would put pieces, small pieces of sharp metal, bone, and glass, or glass, in these things. And so when it would hit the person, it would stick and it would dig into the person and rip their flesh, their flesh off. And um, 
You know, the Jews had the, uh, when they whipped somebody, they had the, um, they could only whip somebody 39 lashes. And plus, the Jews didn't use one of those special kind of whips. The Romans didn't have any limit on how many times they could hit somebody. So they would, they could beat them. And sometimes the, the victim would suffer or they'd die when they were, when they were, um, they were whipped. And in this situation, Jesus was whipped that, you know, the Roman, the guards, they didn't like him. They hated him because they hate the Jews. And so here's an opportunity for them to just really vent their anger and their, and their uh, frustration out on Jesus. So they, we all know that he was, he was beaten. Put a crown of thorns on his head, crucifixion with the nails, spilling of blood and water. It was a job well done. So when Jesus was crucified, he was dead. As a matter of fact, what they would do, sometimes a victim could hang on a cross. Uh, crucifixion could hang there for, for days. And they just suffer and suffer. And so what they would do to speed up the process, because the nails that were in their wrist, they would push up to breathe. And they would look, go, and then they'd, you know, they'd... Uh, be suffering everything. They push up the breed so they could do that for hours and hours and hours. And so to hurry up and speed up the process, they would break their. They come by and bust their legs, break both their legs, so they couldn't push up anymore because they the, they push up on the bottom nail in their in their ankles. And so the other two prisoners, they broke their legs. They came to Jesus, and he was already dead. He's already dead. And so it's verified by them because he was dead, and they they checked to make sure he was dead. Then they let uh, Joseph. Uh, take him so and this is going to be important later on next week as we talk about some of the the evidence but um, when a person was crucified they did a thorough job second jesus was buried um, by a jewish burial christ's body was wrapped with more than 100 pounds of spices according to the precise jewish burial customs john 19 39 and 40 nicodemus the man who had come to jesus at night came to bring in a hundred pounds of embalming ointment made from myrrh and aloes Together they wrapped Jesus' body in a long linen cloth, saturated with spices, as is the Jewish custom of burial. So basically what they did, they took him down, they washed his body ceremonially, and then they began to wrap him, not only in the, in the linen cloth, but they had a hundred pounds of spices, it says right here. And they'd make this gummy paste, and they would put it, um, basically it's kind of like mummifying him. He was wrapped up like a mummy. And the encasing on that, when they finished, was anywhere between 110 and 120 pounds. So just the, the wrapping on Jesus' body was about 120 pounds. That's going to be important to know later, too. Next, a solid rock tomb. The body of Christ was buried in a solid rock tomb uh, that, was, that was carved out. So there's no way of escaping out the back of the, at the tomb. Um, next was a very large stone. was rolled in front of the, the entrance. So we had the cave, Jesus inside the cave. And it was a, a large stone, and, and scientists and engineers say that the stone weighed approximately two tons. So it was a pretty big rock. The next Roman security guard, Matthew 27, 63-66, says, Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said that after three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have your guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set, they set a seal on the stone. I thought this was very interesting because they knew. Remember, the religious leaders were the ones that killed Jesus. He was causing problems for them. He was messing up their system. He was becoming more popular than them. And they were just very angry with him. And they found a, an excuse to kill him. They did. But then they remembered that he said, kill me and three days later I'll be raised again. And so they knew that. And they remembered that. And they said, hey, look, what, what happens if the disciples come at night and steal the body and say, hey, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Then we're going to be in trouble because that deception is going to be a lot worse. And he said, okay. Take a secure guard and make, the, make it as secure as you know how. And I think that's very interesting that they made it as secure as they knew how. And yet we still know what happens. And what they used was a Roman security guard. It says this unit was considered by historians to be one of the most one of the greatest offensive and defensive fighting machines ever conceived. One helping source for understanding the importance of the Roman guard is is Flavius 
uh, Renatus, a, a military historian. He lived several hundred years after the time of Christ when the Roman army started to deteriorate in his discipline. He wrote a manual to the Roman emperor to encourage him to instill the methods of offensive and defensive warfare used by the Romans during the time of Christ. This man wanted to see the Roman armies restored to the efficiency and might which characterized them at the time of Christ. These armies were great because they were highly disciplined. We find that the Romans owed the conquest of the world to no other cause than continual military training, exact observance of discipline in their camps, and unwearied cultivation of the other arts of war. A Roman guard was a unit of four to six men. Each man was trained to protect six feet of ground. The 16 men in a square the 16 men in a square of four on each side were supposed to be able to protect 36 yards against an entire battalion and hold it. Normally what they did was this. Four men were placed immediately in front of what they were protecting. The other 12 were asleep in a semicircle in front of them with their heads pointing in. To steal what these guards were protecting, thieves would first have to walk over those who were asleep. Every four hours, another unit of four was awakened and those who had been asleep would awake with the sleep. They would rotate this way around the clock. So this is a, a very, this wasn't just a, a group of guys. Like sometimes on, on pictures, you, the captions, you'll see some guys standing there with some sticks, you know. You know, they're supposed to be guarding this thing. But this was a very, very disciplined and very mighty um, uh, fighting machine. And you can remember, after Jesus crucified, what did, the, what did the disciples do? They dispersed and they were hiding, weren't they? What was that? They ran. They were hiding. Did it say anywhere that they were plotting? Hmm, how can we steal the body? How can we, you know, we can whip up on those guards and take the body and, and do all this kind of thing. They were afraid. They were afraid. Matter of fact, Peter was so afraid that even before all that happened, he denied Jesus Christ three times. Because, see, he was afraid that the same thing was going to happen to him as what they were doing to Jesus. And so the disciples were not some fighting military machine. But the guard here was a very secure and disciplined machine uh, guarding the tomb. What we're going to do is we're going to close with this. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and show that video. We'll close with this.
You know, our prayer has been that, particularly on this, on this uh, day, not that you would just hear, any, hear something intellectually, but that God's Spirit would, would deal with you in, your, in your, your heart, your spirit. You know, because it's not about convincing you intellectually who Jesus was. I mean, the Holy Spirit does that. And all of us, you know, if we'd be honest with ourselves, we know He is who He says He is. You know, aside from all the things we're talking about today. And I just want to ask you, the question I started out with earlier, who is Jesus Christ to you? And I'm not speaking intellectually this time. What I mean by who is Jesus Christ to you, in light of who he is, what have you done concerning him? Because you can say, oh, yeah, I believe he's the son of God and still keep him over here. If God is not real. Then we're all wasting our time here. And you need to be out trying to find as much money as you can, get as much as you can, any way you can get it without getting caught. Because if God's not real, then money is is what life is really about. But if he's real, if God is real. Does he deserve my entire life? Or is he only worthy of part of it? You know, when Jesus died on that cross and he was beaten and and all that kind of stuff, he didn't just do that so we can have a nice Sunday morning service. He did that so you and I could be free to live with him on a day to day basis. So we can be free from the bondage of sin, free from the, the torment and the, the, the junk that just torments our minds and our souls. So here's what I'm going to ask. Go ahead, everybody just close their eyes. Have a private moment here as we're reflecting on who Jesus Christ is and what we've done with him. If you realize that you don't know him, you haven't, there hasn't been a time when you've committed your life to him. And you believe God's dealing with your heart right now and you feel him tugging on your heart. And you say, you know what? I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that God raised him from the dead. I want to commit my life to him right now. If you want to commit your life to Jesus Christ this morning on this Easter Sunday, I want to ask you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. And this isn't about what the person next to you is doing. It's not about what your spouse is doing or what they don't do. This is about you and God. So if you're ready to commit your life to Jesus, I ask you to raise your hand. Okay. You can go and put your hands down. Now there's some of us who, who, um, Maybe when we were young or a, a time in the past, when we did, we made that profession of faith, put our life, our faith in Jesus. But we know since that point, we've been doing our own thing. Live our own, our own life, walk in our own walk. And today we realize, you know what? I am ready to recommit to submit myself to the king because he truly is the king. And if that's you and you want to do that today, you want to make that commitment, that decision today, I want to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to ask the uh, altar counselors to come up front, please. And those of you who responded to commit your life to Jesus, what I'm going to challenge you to do is in a minute, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come up front and talk to one of the uh, teams of people here. Tell them the decision that you've made. Let them pray for you. Encourage you and, and just minister to you. Thank you. But also, if you don't fall into either one of those categories, you're you're doing good. Jesus and, and you are running together and everything. But you have some needs. You have needs in your life, and you, you need God to help minister to you. I also want to invite you in a minute to come up. I will sing your praise. 
shed your blood.